0: Good morning. My name is Chuck Clavati. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 48, verses 8 through 20, which can be found on page 41 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles home with you. Again, that's Genesis 48, 8 through 20. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh, was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the elders and pastors here. Uh, I'm going to dismiss the children in just one minute. I have really just one announcement. There are many announcements in the bulletin, so please look through them. But I only have one, and that's tonight we have the missions night, and uh, Paul will be speaking. There will be other missionaries, so please come to that. Uh, if, if you have time, it's at 545 tonight here at the Church and the Fellowship. Hall, it'll last till 7. It's a good time to hear what God is doing around the world. And now children between 2 and 8 are released for Children's Church. If you're visiting here, if you're new, uh, please just take your children that way in the foyer and there'll be somebody there to tell you where to go. We are going to stay in the story of Joseph today. We have, uh, I think, two more weeks to finish up the whole series We've, we've called this series, a Conspiracy of Grace, because all the events of Joseph's life, as we have seen so far and we'll see more, have been orchestrated by God to bring about his good purposes for his people. So things like his father's favoritism, and his brother's jealousy, and his brother's selling him into slavery, and his imprisonment, uh, slander... And finally, his exaltation to the position of power and authority in Egypt. All these things, all these things are part of God's conspiracy to bless his people. Now, last week we considered the culmination of the story when finally Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and there was this great reconciliation that instead of taking revenge on his brothers as he could. He had that opportunity, he had that power. Instead, he forgave them and he reconciled with them. Now, of course, God has already been working in their hearts as well. And so finally, the family is reunited. Now, the whole family, Jacob's family, everybody moves to Egypt to survive this great famine. And that's where we find ourselves today in our story, Uh, They're settled in Egypt. In fact, we're going to fast forward 17 years later. The famine has passed. Jacob's family has prospered in Egypt. And Jacob, this very old man, is on his deathbed, and he summons Joseph to give him presumably the final blessing, final instructions before Jacob, this patriarch, dies and goes to be with his father's. And he has three goals. Jacob has three goals that he wants to accomplish in this final conversation with Joseph. And the first one, that's the one we didn't read about. This is chapter 47. He makes Joseph promise that he will bury him in Egypt and not, that he will not bury him in Egypt but will take him to Canaan where Abraham and Isaac So that's very important for Jacob, that his bones would not stay in Egypt. Number two, he wants to bless Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and actually he will adopt them as his own children. And finally, the third goal is that he gives Joseph a piece of land in Canaan, a particular mountain slope that he wants Joseph to have. So I'll talk about all these three things, but I want to focus on the second one, on the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. I want to focus on that specifically because of another passage of Scripture. So I'd like you to please take your Bibles and go to Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, verse 21. Now that's the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and for most of you this is a familiar passage. That's that famous chapter where the author of Hebrews lists all these different people from Scripture who lived a life of faith. And he picks a particular moment of each person's life to highlight their faith. And when he comes to Jacob, Jacob was in that series of names, when he comes to Jacob, verse 21, Hebrews 11, this is what we read about Jacob. By faith, Jacob... When dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So out of all the instances of Jacob living by faith, a very long life, 147 years of living by faith, the author of Hebrews chooses this one particular moment. That's our text this morning. The moment when Jacob blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. As anybody, my question is why? Why pick this, this moment? What is so special about the blessing of these two grandchildren that makes it into Hebrews 11? What is it in the, the mind of the author of Hebrews that makes this moment unusually an unusual expression of faith in Jacob's life. What happened that exemplified faith, which is the most essential quality of the Christian life? So that's the question that I have, and I'd like to answer it this morning. I'd like to suggest to you that in the act of blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, specifically the way that Jacob did it, He revealed the essence of the biblical faith. Jacob shows us what a life with God is based on. To put it in the New Testament terms, Jacob proclaimed the gospel. In the act of blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob preaches the gospel to us this morning. That's the legacy he wants to leave. And so let me show you three essential elements of the Christian gospel, of the Christian faith, that we find in Jacob's words and actions. So my outline is simple. It's three points. Number one, we see the disillusionment with the world. Number two, the delight in grace. And number three, the desire for Christ. That is the gospel, and I'll show you how it all fits together disillusionment with the world delight in grace and desire for Christ it's his faith in these three essential elements of the gospel that was highlighted in Hebrews 11 i believe so let me prove it to you verses 3 and 4 please turn there in this is Genesis 48 verses 3 and 4 Jacob is recalling his own experience with God, God meeting him at Bethel, or also called Luz, where God renews his covenant promises to his family, makes them specifically to Jacob. And he promises two things to Jacob. God says, I will multiply you. You will become of this great nation. You'll have many descendants. And secondly, you will have this land. I will give you this land for your possession. so your family will be in this land, the land of Canaan. Now, this is what he remembers, and this is why he wants to bless Joseph. And in the way Jacob blesses Joseph, we see how Canaan and Egypt are set against each other. Now, please notice what what is happening here. This family of God, this family of Jacob, they're in Egypt now. They've been there for 17 years. They're doing great. They have a lot of land, they are multiplying. They're becoming wealthy. Not only have they survived the famine, now they're, they're becoming wealthy. Joseph is the second most important person in the empire. So they have one of their own in the palace. Things could not have gone better in Egypt for them. And yet notice how many times Jacob is going to point to Canaan in his blessing. He does not want Joseph to get too comfortable in Egypt. Now, Joseph has achieved immeasurably more in Egypt than Jacob achieved in Canaan. And yet, Jacob wants Joseph to remember that their home is in Canaan. Now, just notice how many times he points back to Canaan. For example, in Genesis 47:29 through 31, Jacob makes Joseph swear to him that he will bury him in Canaan where Abraham and Isaac are buried. So he, Jacob does not want to stay in Egypt. He doesn't want his bones to stay in Egypt. So he makes Joseph promise to take his body and to bury it in Canaan. Secondly, in Genesis 48, verse 5, Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own children. This is a legal adoption ceremony. The way he speaks, the way he puts them on his knees, what he does is he adopts legally these two children as his own children. So now instead of Joseph, he has these two new children, and thus they get inheritance in the land of Canaan. So now Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be two extra tribes in Israel. So you may remember when Israel leaves Egypt, this is years, years later, and they come to Canaan to conquer Canaan as God has promised them. Each tribe was allotted a particular portion of the land. So Judah got a piece of land, Benjamin got a piece of land, you got Reuben and Levi and all those brothers, there were 12, right? They got a piece of land except for Levi who were supposed to serve the Lord without the land. But instead of Joseph, it's Ephraim that gets land and Manasseh that gets land. They function as tribes because they've been legally adopted into Jacob's family. Now that's second. So he adopts them and gives them inheritance in Canaan. Thirdly, in Genesis 48, verse 7, Jacob reminds Joseph that his mother Rachel is buried in Canaan as well. And finally, Genesis 48:22, Jacob gives an additional piece of land in Canaan, to Joseph. Now, they're doing great in Egypt. Why talk so much about Canaan and try to connect Joseph so closely to Canaan? That's because Jacob does not want Joseph to think of Egypt as his real home. He does not want him to get too comfortable in Egypt and forget about God's covenant promises to his people. Now, yes, the family is prospering, yes, Yes, the family is multiplying. Yes, they have survived the famine by moving to Egypt. And yes, we can even say with full assurance that it was God who moved them to Egypt so they can survive and prosper. But God's promises are connected to Canaan. They're not connected to Egypt, even though it looks like they have even more blessings now than they had in Canaan. Those are not promises being fulfilled. Those are just extra blessings that that come at that time. So Jacob is warning Joseph about getting too comfortable in Egypt and encourages him to keep looking to Canaan as the place where the family is supposed to flourish. Now Jacob isn't just talking about regional preferences. It's not like he really just enjoyed living in Canaan. He's pointing to a fundamental Christian conviction, which is why this is the moment that is highlighted in Hebrews 11. Now here's the fundamental Christian conviction that Jacob believes. He believes that the world is bankrupt and it cannot be trusted. Egypt, that represents the world in Scripture, is not to be trusted. So he wants to impress it on Joseph that even though things are going well and God is blessing them in Egypt, this is not their home and they cannot trust it. They cannot stay there. They need to be thinking about Canaan, planning to return to Canaan because that's in Canaan that God's promises are being fulfilled. Now here's what I mean by the world. Let me describe this. The world is a system that claims that happiness is achieved by the human pursuit of pleasure, power, and possessions. The world is a system that claims that happiness is achieved by the human pursuit of pleasure, power, and possessions. And you say, where did you come up with such a detailed definition of the world? So I will direct you to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. 1 John two sixteen. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is how Scripture defines the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life of life. The desires of the flesh, that's pleasure. The desires of the eyes, that's possessions. And pride of life, that's power. That's the world. The world is a system. It's not a place. We we tend to think of the world as a place, but it's more than that. It's a system. It's a society. It's an organization. It's a structure that is set up to prop up this one fundamental principle and that is that we can be happy by making ourselves happy that's the principle the world is organized on that one foundation that we can achieve happiness we can achieve fulfillment we can achieve joy by pursuing things that the world tells us will make us happy which is power and pleasure and possessions and jacob at his old age, has been disillusioned in the world. And he knows that even though Egypt offers power and pleasure and possessions, even though his family now has all those three things, they are not to be trusted. And you cannot invest eternal expectations in the world. If each person, by virtue of being sinful, attempts to live apart from God, then the world is a whole society of sinners, a whole system based on the premise that humanity can be happy without God. And Jacob says no. By faith, Jacob is suspicious towards the world. By faith, he wants Joseph to know that you cannot trust Egypt. This is not your home. Don't get comfortable here. God is going to bring you back to Canaan where his promises are going to be By faith, Jacob affirms that there's no real happiness outside of God. There's no real true contentment outside of God. There's no home without God. The world pretends to be what God is, but it cannot give you what God can. The world will always disappoint us. Now, this is an essential gospel Teaching. Unless we understand that the world cannot fulfill us, we will not seek Jesus as a Savior. To put it differently, the world cannot save us, nor can we save ourselves, and that is why we need Jesus. Israel's salvation does not rest on Joseph's success in Egypt. Now, temporarily, it does. But ultimately, it doesn't. And Jacob doesn't want Joseph to be deceived. He doesn't want him to accept that in Egypt they can prosper, flourish, and survive forever. If you are familiar with the Bible, you know what will happen to Jacob's family in Egypt in the generations following Joseph. What seems so great right now, power, possessions, Pleasures of Egypt. They're doing great. They have a whole piece of land, Goshen, to themselves. They have a man in the palace who who is able to protect their interests. But within just a few generations, other pharaohs are going to come. Pharaohs who don't remember Joseph, who don't remember that Joseph saved Egypt from famine. And they will enslave Israel. And Israel will live unbearable lives to the point where God will have to rescue them Now, I don't know how much Jacob expects that to happen necessarily, but Jacob knows full well it's not going to fulfill you. It's going to eventually enslave you. In 1 John 2, verse 16 that we read, it's followed by verse 17 that says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jacob knows that. And by faith, he affirms it. By faith, he expresses it to Joseph and to Joseph's children. Let me apply this to us. Have you been disillusioned with the world yet? I'm saying yet, because if you're not disillusioned with the world, you will be disillusioned with the world. It may take you your whole life to get there, but you will get there. Talk to the people who have lived longer life than you if you haven't been disillusioned with the world. They'll tell you. They'll tell you how it works. They'll tell you about their dreams that have been shattered. They'll tell you about unexpected things that have happened to them that have completely turned the course of their lives around. They'll tell you that they, they used to hope for certain things to work out in a certain way. They used to trust certain promises, and now they no longer do that, because their experience have showed that it doesn't work that way. The world cannot be trusted. The world cannot deliver on the promises it makes to us. This is an essential part of being a Christian, is distrusting the world. My question to you is, are you still trying to find fulfillment through what the world promises? The world is not big enough to satisfy you. That's what the gospel is telling us. You can't trust it because it's not big enough for you. The only thing, maybe the only spiritual truth we can learn from the James Bond franchise is that the world is not enough. I was looking for one truth to pull out. I found one. The world isn't enough. It's not big enough. It can't satisfy you. Augustine said that we have been created for God. He's made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. There's no rest in the world for us. It's not made to give us rest. If you are a Christian that is feeling the pull of the world, as some of us are, as Joseph did. Joseph was more of an Egyptian at this point than he was a Hebrew. He's assimilated. So if you are like Joseph, that's feeling that pull towards the world, that's listening to the promises of the world, where the pleasures are offered to you, possessions are offered to you, power is offered to you, and you're saying, that that looks good, that sounds good, maybe it'll work. Let me give you three disciplines you can incorporate into your life right now to combat, to battle against the pull of the world. Number one, fast. Fast. By fasting, you keep in check the desires of the flesh. Did you expect maybe a secret teaching here or some special revelation? No, just stop eating food. That's my advice. Don't eat as much. Don't watch as much TV. Put those desires under control. And for God's sake, say, I will not eat today. I will skip this meal because I don't trust my flesh. And I don't want to believe that through my flesh I could be satisfied. And so you say, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to look to Canaan today, not to Egypt, for my satisfaction. Fast and keep in check the desires of the flesh. Number two, give. Give your money away. That's how you will keep in check the desires of your eyes, the possessions. Give. Give your money to other people. Give your money to the church. Give your money to the missionaries. Give your money to the poor. And by doing that, what you're saying is, I don't trust the world, because the world tells me, if I have more money, I will be happier. But the gospel tells me it's not about money. So I will give my money away so that I will keep in check the desires of my eyes. So I won't buy everything I want. I will deliberately limit myself even more than I have to. I'm not talking about I can't, I don't have money to buy something I want. I'm talking about I have money to buy what I want and I'm not going to do it. Give that money away. So if you're not tithing, if you're not given to missions, if you're not given to the poor, start doing that. Not only is that good to the people you're giving money to, great for them, but it's great for you because you keep in and check the desires of your eyes. And number 3, serve. Serve. This is how you keep in check pride of life, power, control, independence. By serving someone else. Find people, and there are people in your life today, that you can serve. Serve them not because it gives you any sort of benefit. Serve them purely for their benefit. Help in the nursery, if you're looking for a great service opportunity where you get no benefit. <laughs> serve the children. They won't even tell you thank you. <laughs> serve them so that you can check your own pride of life. Put yourself in a situation that is not correspondent to your status in life, to your class in life. Put yourself lower deliberately. Go do something that is totally out of character so you can check pride of life. Those are my three suggestions to you. If you're struggling with the pull of the world in your life, if you feel like it's drawing you away from Christ, this is what you can do. Fast, give, and serve. So by faith, Jacob affirms the bankruptcy of the world. Number two, by faith, he delights in grace. Another essential gospel doctrine. He delights in grace. The gospel teaches us that happiness is not earned. It is received as a gift. We're made to be happy, but we're made to be happy by something given to us, something done for us, as a recipient of happiness, not as an earner or a worker for happiness. Happiness comes by grace. And at some degree, happiness is always surprising. Now, think about your life, think about your experience. I'm going to try to show you that in our life we already know this truth, even though it's clear in Scripture, but I think we already know that from our own experience. For example, if it's your birthday, would you be happier... If someone else threw a party for you or if you threw a party for yourself, what would make you happier? Most of us would say, I would be happier if somebody did it for me, especially if it's a surprise party. Now, some of us, were not comfortable with surprises. I understand that. I am not comfortable with surprises. Let me just make it very clear. I don't (laughs) want surprise parties. But many of us love that because it happens as a gift. It's my birthday, and somebody does something great for me. That makes me happy. It's different if I would have invited everybody and designed the party and organized everything. That's work. And I would be satisfied with my work, but I wouldn't necessarily be happy. We are happy when someone loves us despite our flaws. If you got married to someone who you thought was inferior to you, I don't think you were all that happy on your wedding day. You felt like, well, of course. Makes sense. But that person would marry me. (laughs) And so you would feel maybe satisfied. Maybe you would feel this is right. Or maybe you'd feel like I kind of settled a little bit, maybe. But you wouldn't be happy. But if you marry someone that you think is infinitely superior to you, And even on your wedding day, you're still a little bit concerned that they're not going to show up, right? (laughs) Because it just doesn't make sense that they would stay with you. That makes you very happy, doesn't it? When you say, this person loves me and accepts me and and they're in love with me, they want to be with me, and it doesn't make any sense because of my flaws, and yet they love me. Makes us happy when that happens. We are happy when we get a raise above what we deserve. Now, when you go to your boss and you list all the reasons of why you should get a raise, and he says, you're exactly right, this is the fair raise that you should get, and you walk out of the office, you're happy that you got a raise, but you feel justified, you feel like that's right, it's fair. What happened is supposed to happen. But if your boss says, I'm going to give you double of what you're asking for, what you deserve... You walk out of that office skipping, right? Why? You didn't expect that. It's a gift. And you think, this is great. This is grace in my life. I'm not supposed to get that, and yet I did. So that makes us much happier when something undeserving happens to us. We are happy when our team wins, even though we are not personally contributing to any of our team's victories. Look at these fans. Look at the Cub fans. Right? So happy. What? Did they play? <laughs> they didn't play. None of those fans played. None of those fans contributed in any way. And yet they're so happy that their team won. It just it happened to them. You see, they were waiting. They were excited. And something happened that was just so great, so unexpected So unexpected, let me emphasize (laughs) that, that it makes them happy. We are happy when we look at a piece of art someone else painted or a piece of music someone else wrote. That makes us happy because it's not coming from us. It's not something we did. You can be satisfied with your work, but you will be happy and delighted at someone else's work. Now, I'm using these rather trivial examples, and maybe this one is the most trivial of all. all. When you go shopping, right, and something you want is on sale, that makes your day, right? (laughs) Why? Because you feel like you got something you don't deserve. Right? It's grace. Grace came into your life. It makes you happy. If you go something and you get a fair price, that doesn't make you happy. You just feel good about it. But if you get it on sale, or if you get an extra something, that makes you happy. Now, these are trivial examples, but I'm using them to show you that we all want grace in our lives, and we all are happy when grace happens to us, because that is how we're designed. We're not designed to pursue happiness through works, we're not designed to pursue happiness through achievement, as the world tells us. The world tells us, do this and you will get that. But God says, let me just give you that to make you happy. And so we are happy when gifts comes into come into our lives, when good things happen when we don't deserve it, when things happen to us that we could not even imagine. That's grace. And so we already know that from our experience and we know that from Scripture that Jesus gives his grace to us, and we are happy about that. Now, here's how we see Jacob delighting in grace. This is the curious part of this passage. Uh, Now, you may know that Jacob was a trickster. Did you know that Jacob was a trickster? He tricked his older brother into giving him the birthright. Then he tricked his dad into blessing him as a firstborn. And this is the old trickster's final trick. I think it pleased Jacob a little that he was able to do that. (laughs) I think when he crossed his arms, I think he was smiling a little. This is his his last trick. When he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, he crosses his hands and he places his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. Now remember, Joseph brought the children to him in a specific way because he knew Jacob was older, he couldn't see very well. So Joseph was thinking, okay, I'm going to put the firstborn towards his right hand because that's how you do things. And I'm going to put his, my, my youngest son towards his left hand because the oldest gets the blessing of the firstborn, the youngest gets another blessing. And Jacob does this, right, and smiles because he blesses the youngest as the firstborn, and he blesses the firstborn as the youngest. He elevates Ephraim into the position of leadership in the family, while Manasseh also gets a blessing, but Ephraim's blessing is different. Now, Joseph doesn't like that. Joseph thinks it's unfair. Joseph thinks it's wrong to do that, and he says to his father, "'Not this way, my father,' Since this one is the firstborn, Manasseh is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But Jacob refuses and says, I know, my son. He knows what he's doing. He says, I know, my son. I know. He also shall become a people. Nothing unfair is going to happen to Manasseh. He's still going to benefit tremendously from this blessing, more than he could imagine. His tribe is going to be powerful as well. But, nevertheless... Jacob says, His younger brother, Ephraim, shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh by grace. Manasseh still received a blessing, but Ephraim will become the prominent tribe in Israel. In fact, as you read the Old Testament, you will see that often Ephraim is used instead of Israel. Sometimes the whole the whole northern part of the empire is referred to as Ephraim because of the prominence of his tribe in Israel. God chose to bless Ephraim by grace, not because he deserved it, but because God chose to bless him. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, Grace observes not the order of nature, nor does God prefer those whom we think fittest to be preferred, but as it pleases him. It is observable how often God, by the distinguishing favors of his covenant, advanced the younger above the elder. And then Matthew Henry lists the names Abel above Cain, Shem above Japheth, Abraham above Nahor and Haran, Isaac above Ishmael, Jacob above Esau, Judah and Joseph were preferred before Reuben, Moses before Aaron, David and Solomon before their elder brothers. That's grace. Consistently in Scripture, God does not choose people on the basis of whether they are fittest to that, whether they have accomplished the most, whether they are the first in line. This is not how God works. God chooses those that He wishes, as He wills, and He blesses people as He wills. The world's way is to bless the firstborn. But God does things by grace. Do you remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20? Have you been bothered by that parable? Remember, there's the parable of a master of the vineyard, owner of the vineyard, who is hiring workers. And so he comes, and there are people hanging out uh, seasonal workers just hanging out, and so he comes out early in the morning and he hires a bunch of people. Then he comes back a few hours later and he hires more people. Then he comes back a few hours later, and so there's different groups of people that come in at different times of the day to work. Now he negotiates with them. The, the normal pay for the day is one denarius, so that's the expectation of those who started early in the day. They would get fair wages, so it will be a denarius for a day full day of work. And then there are people who came in very late in the day and only worked for one hour. So all these different people, right? Matthew, this is in Matthew 20. And so then the master comes out to pay the laborers, and he starts with those who only worked for an hour at the end of the day when it was cooler and there wasn't as much work left. And he gives them a denarius. And everybody else thinking, this is great. If they got a denarius, Right? Certainly we will get more than they got because they only worked for an hour and we worked for a whole day. Turns out everybody got a denarius. People are angry. Why? Well, they say, I worked more than that guy. Why am I not getting more money than he did? And Jesus said, but the master agreed with you to the amount that you're receiving. This is fair. He just decided to bless other people more than you. Now, the world's way is to say everybody has to get the appropriate amount to their efforts. God's way is saying, I'll be fair with you, but I will also bless you beyond that. Jacob was affirming grace in his blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. And by the way, that phrase that many of us really like the last will become first, and the first will become last. That comes at the end of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. That's where that comes from. When Jesus says the last will become first, the first will become last. He's saying it's grace. If you're first here, please don't assume you're going to be first with God. That's the world's way. If you're last here, don't assume you're going to be last with God. It's the world's way. God is going to bless us by grace. So have you come to grips with this idea of grace? Or does the parable of the laborers in the vineyard still bother you? Well, you read it and you're like, there's got to be a better explanation than that. It surely doesn't say what I think it says, that God would just bless someone who worked less than the other person. Friends, that is exactly what it's saying. God gives all of us gifts that we don't deserve. Yes, he's a just and fair God. He's not going to treat anybody unfairly but he will bless many beyond what we expect because he's a God of grace. And every one of us has things in our lives that we absolutely do not deserve, that we cannot connect with any accomplishments or any effort or any smarts that we have. It's just been given to us by God. So my question is, have you come to grips with this idea of grace? You see, grace isn't something extra given to those who already deserve it. It's not a bonus for the hard-working people. How many people at church this morning, Christians at Christian churches, who believe that grace is just a little bit extra that we need? We pretty much got it all together, but we need just a little bit extra to get to God, and so He gives it to us. So, you know, if you got your life together repented of your sins, you figured out your dysfunction, you, you, you brought some healing to yourself, then God will get you the rest of the way. So many Christians believe that and it is absolutely wrong. That is not at all what Scripture teaches. Jesus doesn't come to the healthy and says, let me just give you some vitamins so you feel even more healthy. No, no, no. He comes to the sick. He says, let me heal you completely. He comes to the dead and He says, I'm going to raise you back to life. That's grace. And so none of us can ever complain that someone else got more than we did. God can do whatever he wants. The fact that you're noticing that these gifts are happening is grace in and of itself. So rejoice that God has been gracious to you. And rejoice that other people have experienced God's grace too, to whatever degree. Ephraim was not supposed to become the firstborn, but God made him by grace, no other reason. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, in case you think this is maybe an Old Testament teaching. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Paul says to the Corinthian church, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you can boast in anything but the Lord, let me respectfully suggest that you need to further consider the doctrine of grace. If you think you have brought anything to the table, you need to consider what grace is really about. There is nothing in us that demands that God would save us or bless us in any way. We are sinners who have organized our whole lives to avoid Him and to resist Him. And God saves some of us. And God Blesses us. Even in our sinful state, God blesses us. He comes and He saves us. Jesus becomes wisdom. He becomes righteousness. He becomes sanctification. Not because we make Him, not because we are wisdom or righteousness or sanctification. It's happening to us from outside because God has decided to bless us. Some of you may say, Yeah, but I have faith. Isn't that something? Okay. Why do you have faith and your neighbor doesn't have faith? Why do you have faith and your sibling who grew up with you in the same Christian family going to the same Christian church reading the same Christian books doesn't have faith? Can you really boast in that? Can you really claim it as your own accomplishment in any way? I can't. I can't. I don't know why God chose me. I don't know why I believed. I cannot explain that in human terms. There's no reason why the gospel should appeal to me when I was converted. I don't bring anything to the table. God was just gracious, and he saved me, and he saved you. Grace is the answer. Now, I've deliberately pointed to the delight in grace. Not we can talk about the doctrine of grace as we have, but, but the doctrine of grace brings joy into our lives. Remember I said that the world tells you you can be happy by the pursuit of these things, pleasure and power and possessions. The world tells you you can achieve happiness, but grace tells you you can be happy because God can make you happy by what He gives you, by what He does for you, by what He does on your behalf. Grace makes us happy. Do you know how I know that? I have never met a happy legalist. Have you? Have you met a happy legalist? A joyful legalist? Have you ever seen one? They're miserable people. Do you know why? Even though they've placed it in the religious context, but they are still operating under the world's direction. They still believe that if I do this, if I achieve this, if I get this, if I acquire that, then finally God will make me happy. And the gospel says it is totally upside down. God makes you happy because he gives you something. God blesses you with grace and that is what makes you happy just like going to the store and getting something on sale, just like getting married to somebody you know is so much above your league, right? It's not, she's not in my league. And that makes you happy. Why? Something happened to you. A gift has been given to you. That's what makes us happy. Grace makes us happy. There are no happy legalists. Now finally, and we're coming to the conclusion of this message, when we looked at Hebrews 11, and there's this faith of Jacob that's being highlighted in this one instance of blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. We saw that he preached, he proclaimed, he showed these fundamental uh, fundamental pieces of the gospel. One is the disillusionment in the world. The second was the delight in grace, and the final element is his desire for Christ. Jacob's desire for Christ. Now let me show you where I see it in the text. Remember that Reuben the firstborn, the first brother, right, the first son of Jacob, has disqualified himself from assuming the leading role in the family as the firstborn. I won't go into details of what happened. It's a terrible story. But he's been disqualified from that position of leadership. So the natural question is, who would replace Reuben as the firstborn in the family once Jacob dies. This is a very important question. Who's going to make decisions on behalf of the family? So far, Jacob has been making decisions. It's Jacob who decided to move to Egypt and all those other things. So who's going to replace Reuben and then finally replace Jacob as the patriarch, the leader of the clan? Natural choice is Joseph, of course. Joseph has provided for the family. Joseph is the clear leader in the family now. He's got the authority in Egypt. He's got the influence in Egypt. He's wealthy. He's smart. He's wise. Now, I'm not sure if Joseph is expecting that when he comes to the deathbed of his fathers that he will get that blessing of the firstborn, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was expecting that. It makes perfect sense that Jacob would choose Joseph to be the firstborn, to be the leader in the family to pass on that headship to him. And that is not at all what Jacob does because Jacob operates by grace and not by the world's principles. So this is what Jacob does. Let me try to explain this so so we're clear in what's happening here. Jacob does two things here. Number one, he legally adopts Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. It doesn't matter which order they're in at this point. Because he legally adopts them, he now bestows a double portion to Joseph's line. Now remember, each, Ephraim and Manasseh, will get a portion of the land once the land is being distributed to the tribes. So they will get a portion along with Reuben, along with Judah, along with Issachar, all those guys are going to get equal portions in the land, which means that Joseph, through his two sons, gets a double portion. Judah is only going to get one portion, Issachar is only going to get one portion, but Joseph through his children will get two portions, double portion, which makes him effectively the firstborn. That's the firstborn's right to get a double portion. Reuben doesn't get it, Joseph's family gets it through his two sons. Now, if Jacob would have just said, Joseph, you're the firstborn, you get the double portion, everything would have made sense. But here's what he does. He gives them the double portion through his sons, but then he effectively removes Joseph's name from the future of Israel. There's no tribe that bears Joseph's name. It's Ephraim's tribe, and it's Manasseh's tribe, and Reuben and Judah and everybody else. There is no Joseph. So this leader, this natural leader of the family, who has all reasons in the world, to expect that he would be the firstborn, he would be the head of the family, because he has actually rescued his family from famine. He has actually physically saved them. His name is now erased from the future history of Israel. This is remarkable. He gives them the double portion, but he removes his name there's no longer a tribe of Joseph from this point on. There used to be a tribe of Joseph, and now, no more. Now listen to one commentator. This is uh, Rusty Reno. I don't know how many commentators you know with the first name Rusty, but that's one. Rusty Reno. He goes by R.R. Reno for the obvious reasons. Okay. Reno says, he is un- about Joseph. He says about Joseph, he is undoubtedly the crucial brother, the rescuer. We read of no brother harboring objections to Joseph's double portion. He seems to deserve a special status in the clan. Yet that special status puts Joseph's name outside the normal history of Israel. It is as if Joseph's success made him too dangerous for the future of the clan, and he must be suppressed This is the crucial phrase. The place of rescuer to be glorified remains open. The place of rescuer to be glorified remains open. Joseph's name is put aside, and the Old Testament as a whole continues to await the Savior whose name every tongue shall confess. It's subtle what's happening here but it makes perfect sense in the history of of scriptures. What Jacob is saying is he's saying, Joseph is great, and he'll get a double portion, but he's not the Savior. We're still waiting for someone else. Jacob is saying, we're going to leave the place of the firstborn for someone else. Because Joseph, as great as he is, doesn't fit this. He leaves the place of the firstborn open for another savior. He refuses to glorify Joseph because he desires to glorify someone else. By faith, this is why Hebrews 11 makes a big deal of this. By faith, Jacob was looking forward to the coming of the ultimate redeemer of Israel. Now, Joseph did a lot to save the lives of Jacob's family. But a greater salvation was still needed, and it was still coming. When you open the first page of the New Testament, what do you find there? An exciting announcement? Uh-uh. <laughs> genealogy. Hello. You find a genealogy. Led down for many of us. Why? because it's going to tell us about the firstborn in Jacob's family. It's going to tell us who Jesus is, which family he comes from, why it's so important to put him in the context of the family of God through the centuries. Jesus came from the royal line of David, from the tribe of Judah, which by then is the only tribe which maintains their allegiance to the God of Israel. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. But he is also the Lamb that is slain for all God's people. And so Jesus comes. This is years, years, years later. Jesus comes and assumes the leadership as the rescuer king in the family of Jacob. What Joseph prefigured, what Joseph pointed to, now Jesus has fulfilled. Remember, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Joseph wrestled with Egypt and assimilated. But Jesus came into the world and was rejected by the world. The world could not accept Jesus because the world was not set up, designed to accommodate God at all. So when Jesus was put to death on the cross outside of Jerusalem in the land of Canaan, the world was once and for all exposed as bankrupt and unable to fulfill us. Because if the world cannot make a perfect man happy, what can it do with us sinners? So the firstborn of all creation, Jesus, The one who has authority to rule over all creation was rejected and murdered by his creation, thus showing the true nature of the human system. Do you need any more evidence that the world is not going to fulfill you? The world crucified Jesus. Our system, the system that is based on this assumption that we can achieve happiness through our accomplishments, failed Jesus who has accomplished the most of anybody. The world cannot contain Jesus. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave grace to all who would accept him by faith. He offers life to the slaves of death. He offers forgiveness to the slaves of guilt. He offers freedom to those who have been enslaved by the world, which is why Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. We're all following him. Finally, the rescuer king has come. It wasn't Joseph. It's Jesus. And Jacob left room for him. And now Jesus has come. The firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, and now he has started the church of the firstborn. Do you see how all those themes fit together? Jesus who died because the world crushed him. Jesus who rose from the dead to give us grace. Now is the same Jesus who says, I've started this new structure, this new organization, this new system that will operate on the principles of grace and not on the principles of the world. And every child of God will find his or her place in this new community, in this new family of God, where Jesus is the leader of the clan, where Jesus is the firstborn ruling over his creation from the right hand Of the Father. Are you part of God's family? Have you been adopted into His family through the leadership and sacrifice and victory of the firstborn Jesus? Have you been disillusioned with the world? And are you now delighting in grace? And is Jesus your desire? As we come to the Lord's table, I'd like to take you back to where we started this morning, Hebrews 11:21. 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So after he proclaimed the gospel, the bankruptcy of the world, the primacy of grace, the desire for a Savior, after he did that, what did he do next? He worshiped. He worshiped. What is there left to do for us but to worship Him who frees us from the world by His incredible free grace? That is what happens at the table. If you're a believer, come to the table in worship. Bow to Him, the one who gave you grace, the one who saved you from the world the one who even now is calling you to himself. We're going to worship together in prayer as I lead us, and then we're going to worship together as we sing a song. And if you're a believer, I encourage you to come to the table. We're going to sing and walk forward and take communion right up here. If you're out in the balconies, you can take communion right where you are. There are tables set up for you there. If you are unable to walk forward... We do not want you to miss out, so please just raise your hand. One of our elders will bring communion right to where you are. So let us pray and worship him in prayer, and then we'll worship him in song and worship him at the table. Father, we are so grateful that you do not leave us in the world, in Egypt, to figure out on our own how to live a life that is fulfilling, And right. In fact, we are grateful that you have told us that it is impossible to live a life that is happy and right outside of you, apart from you. Lord, we are grateful that you are the kind of God that not only created us, but also wants to redeem us because we are sinners. And we confess and we repent that. For many of us, we do still try to find fulfillment in the pleasures, possessions, and power that the world promises. Lord, I pray that you would utterly disillusion us in the world. And even as I pray that, I am scared to pray that because I know that that kind of stuff happens, that kind of realization comes in the midst of suffering. And yet I am compelled to pray that you would Put us in difficult situations so we would be disillusioned in the world because unless we are disillusioned in the world, we cannot understand and experience grace. So even suffering becomes your grace to us. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that. For those of us who still feel this trem- towards the world as if it can fulfill us, disillusion us of its promises. I pray, too, that you would help us understand and experience grace to a fuller extent. Lord, many of us, I am in their number, look down on others, and feel as if we are superior to them because we have achieved more. Our lives are more ordered. We have more stuff. We make better decisions. We are more active. We are more religious. We have achieved Higher degrees of Christian piety, all those things become reasons for us to judge others and to look down on them. But that only betrays our and mine misunderstanding of grace. If I have brought nothing to the table, how can I look down on anyone else? How can I be envious of anyone else if it is really by grace? So, Father, I pray that you would help us understand how grace works. And that as we understand, we will love you more, we will obey you better, we will love others more graciously, more sacrificially, that it will not be an excuse to sin more as if grace would abound because we sin more but that this will be a reason and motivation a justification for us to pursue a holy and righteous life. Not in our power, not for ourselves, but because of Jesus. May your Holy Spirit reveal these truths to us, not just to our minds, but to our hearts, and let our bodies respond in obedience. Father, I pray that as we come to your table, And we confess our sins. We say we are sinners. We do seek satisfaction in the world. We don't understand grace. That we would find more grace. As we come to the table and as we take the bread into our mouth, as we take the cup to our lips, and as these elements get into our body, I pray that the gospel would get into our souls, that our faith would increase and be strengthened so that someone else, at some point in the future, will be able to say, by faith they came to the table of the Lord and took the bread and took the cup and bowed in worship before Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us do it by faith. Let us do it on the basis of grace. Let us not take it lightly. This is Jesus extending his grace to us. Let's do it together.